Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Um, I guess today, She's a biological engineer, senior scientist at Berkeley Lab. Her name is Oindrila Mukhopadhyay. I hope I've said that right. I, I tried my best, but uh, here she is, and we're going to talk about um, membrane transport and um, you know phenotypes of, uh, of microbial systems, meaning what do they look like, their morphology, you know, how do they act, etc. Uh, she'll be able to explain it better than I will, but that's the basics. So, Oindrila, thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah. So yes, um, uh, I, I study microbes, um, bacteria, fungi, uh, mostly because uh, these are fascinating organisms. They do a lot of interesting things that we don't give them credit for, all the way from digesting our food for us to cycling elements in the environment. Uh, they are the most fascinating uh, organisms out there. So that, that, that's why I study them. And that's why I study what they look like and, and what they can do. So what, what kind of system do you study them in regards to, uh, let's say, plants, you know, their myco and microbiome? Or do you study them in various contexts? Like what's the focus of where you're examining them? So I study them from trying to get an understanding of their physiology. Uh, when I'm studying an organism in the environment, it is typically because they have some very interesting ability to cycle an element or eliminate something bad from the environment, like a toxin or a pesticide or something like that. Um, and I'm very interested in trying to figure out exactly how this organism can do that and deploy it in a way um, that can result in something useful for us. When I'm studying a microbe in the lab, uh, it is usually to try and figure out how to use the considerable uh, biology that microbes have to make uh, compounds and products that are of value to us, all the way from materials to fuels. Um, these are the biggest challenges uh, facing us today, uh, um, what we need for our day-to-day -day lives, and microbes can be a solution to a lot of it. So what uh, microbes in particular are you studying and in what kind of environment? So for instance, I study a lot of pseudomonads. Uh, I study Pseudomonas putida, uh, specifically uh, an organism that a lot of me, my peers, colleagues, and scientists all over the world study, a particular strain called KT2440 uh, that is uh, very well known for its ability to eat uh, carbon sources that other microbes have difficulty eating. Why it is important for us to study this organism is because we want to take advantage of its very vers versatile metabolism and convert um, all kinds of renewable carbon sources to final products. 
Another organism that I've studied a lot in the past is a sulfate-reducing organism called Desulfovibrio vulgaris, a vulgaris meaning common. It is a sulfate-reducing organism. It's anaerobic. It's found in a lot of different anaerobic environments. Like if you've ever driven by a pond and it smelled a little rotten, it was probably because there was a sulfate reducer in there. Um, these organisms are responsible for a host of biology in our environments, including sulfur cycling. Uh, so um, those, those are organisms that I've studied. I've studied um, cyanobacteria in the desert uh, that uh, form these vast, vast uh, biofilms that are literally holding the desert down. Um, they form these biocrusts really? and they have fantastic biology. They are the founder organisms in deserts. Yeah. And they sequester all the carbon and they provide sort of like the matrix where other organisms can also survive. Um, oh, can we, can we are, go a little bit deeper on the... Uh... You know, the biology of deserts, because I've really never heard much about that at all. What, um, you said they form a, a crust? Yes, it's uh, so. So when you when you when one thinks of the desert, one doesn't necessarily uh, think of of life, but in fact, uh, there are all kinds of microbes in the desert soil, uh, including the cyanobacteria. They form uh, biofilms, um, sometimes dominated by single organisms that are acres long, um, and they effectively are holding down the desert. Desert. Uh, they can survive for years and years in sort of very dormant kind of states, and they require maybe 10 minutes of the first rainfall to start photosynthesizing and turning green. Um, they don't fix nitrogen. They need help from another member of the community to do that. Um, but they fix the they fix the carbon um, and uh, they have uh, other really important uh, features. Like they're very highly tolerant to extreme desiccation, like extreme dryness. Uh, they make compounds that are very similar to what might, what might one consider to be sunscreens, uh, cytonamins. Uh, these are studied by um, a very dear friend and collaborator at Arizona State University, Professor uh, Farhan Garcia Pichel, who introduced me to these systems. And we collaborated for a while and studied them. They are fascinating organisms. So in, um, in deserts, have you gone out and actually sampled these biological crusts? Or like, how did you learn about them, for instance? Uh, yes, so I, I specialize in, in something called functional genomics, where we can bring samples into the lab and study at a molecular level with genes are responsible for certain functions, hence functional genomics, and we do that using uh, transcript, like RNA uh, sequencing, um, proteomics, metabolomics, and we put this information together to kind of come up with a model for what that organism might be doing. These models are not perfect, but they allow us to come up with hypothesis of not just what is happening, but how it might be happening. So we wanted to understand how these organisms do what they do. Uh, how do they come out of their sort of stasis 
and become uh, and, and thrive and start photosynthesizing. So we went into the desert um, and we brought like petri dish full of these soil crusts back into the lab. And then we simulated sort of a rainfall event followed by day and night cycles, uh, followed by a dry down events. And we took samples along the way and me and my collaborators, um, several other researchers at Berkeley Lab, we kind of mapped uh, the transcriptome uh, and uh, some metabolite patterns across these uh, sort of a false rainfall, uh, day-night cycles, and then desiccation. And then we could figure out uh, which were the genes that were getting turned on the fastest. And what we found is that Firstly, the genes that get turned on during our rainfall were the first genes to get shut down during um, the fake dry down. And there were a whole other set of genes associated with carbon sequestration that went up and down during our day-night cycles. Um, so that's, that's, that's the part that we studied. Well, when you say genes were uh, turned on or off, that tells me that I guess bacteria have their own type of epigenetics. They have a diurnal cycle, yes, especially photosynthesizing organisms. They have a diurnal cycle um, that coincides with light, uh, um, light and dark cycles. Yes, they do. So what happens when, when a gene is regulated in the bacteria? You know, I understand like in people, there'll be methylation or you know, histone deacetylization. What about in bacteria? What happens? How are, are genes regulated? So bacteria uh, also have um, post-translational modifications, like you talked about, methylation, uh, leading to gene regulation. Uh, but one of the most dominant ways in which bacteria sort of sense their environment and respond uh, in a way to ensure their survival um, is a mechanism called two-component signaling system. Um, this is something also that I have had an opportunity to study a lot. Um, the way these systems work is that there's one component in the membrane uh, with like a sensory domain, and there is one component inside, which is like the effector domain. The sensory domain upon sensing whatever signal it might be, it could be high salt, it could be low salt, it could be a nutrient, a toxin, light, pH, another organism, an antibiotic, um, when it senses these ligands, if you will, um, it undergoes some sort of an allosteric change. Um, and it transfers a phosphate to the second component. The second component has a receiver domain that takes this phosphate. And it can act in various ways. It can be something as simple as a protein that binds to the flagellar system and causes the flagella to rotate differently, moving away or towards uh, whatever that compound is. It could be something far more complicated, like triggering DNA binding um, and either repressing or inducing a large number of genes, for example, antibiotic production or biofilm formation or attachment or detachment uh, or production of a second messenger um, that can regulate uh, organism, the organism to act in a completely different way or even bifurcate into different populations where a small set of the population will do one type of things and the other set of the population will do something completely different, hedging its bets, if you will. It's amazing all these things that can happen. Yes, um, yes, it is. It is just absolutely fascinating. Signaling systems and bacteria are fascinating. 
What about the um, the phagome for a bacteria? You know, the viruses that that work with it. Have you studied those interactions? Uh, not too much. That's not uh, that's not a, a lot of what I do. I've kind of accidentally stumbled into it because those are unavoidable. Um, in a recent study, uh, so so bacteria have many different ways of gaining, losing function, evolving, adapting. One of them are called uh, mobile genetic elements. These are basically tiny little plasmids, uh, very much smaller than their chromosomes that they can maintain. Uh, and sometimes they will sort of like uh, um, put some very specific function and maintain it only on its plasmid. And so I'm very interested in these plasmids. I want to know which organisms have it, what are the functions on these plasmids? Why are these functions on a plasmid and not on its genome? Are they on their way out, on their way in, or just some, some different way of maintaining a function that it needs to deploy a little bit differently than how it does it on its genome? So since I had access to some incredibly interesting environments, um, I went looking for mobile genetic elements, basically looking for plasmids in these environments. And we found a, a lot of plasmids um, in one of these environments. And we, we published that a while ago. But some of these DNA fragments that we found while looking for plasmids didn't look like plasmids to us. They weren't fitting the bill. But they didn't look like fragments of the chromosome either. So um, a couple of years later, uh, people started finding uh, viruses in the environment. And so we reached out to one of these experts. And with their help, we took another look at these mysterious DNA that we had found in these environment. And as it turned out, these were viruses. Uh, some of these viruses had been found before. But a lot of these viruses had never been seen before. Now, all we have is the genome sequence. We don't have the actual viruses, but it's still really fascinating uh, that organisms maintain genetic information outside of their chromosome in viruses and in plasmid uh, that are transmitted using different mechanisms. Hmm. Where do plasmids tend to reside when they're in a bacteria? And, you know, do they move between bacteria? Like, what do you know about their existence? There are a few different kind. There are uh, plasmids that encode their own um, genes uh, that when transcribed make the mechanism for transfer. These are called mobilization genes. Uh, and there are, they can take it one step further uh, and have what is called conjugal machinery on the plasmid as well. Or they can be really simple plasmid where they're relying on the mobilization mechanisms and conjugal transfer of the organism to be able to enter uh, the microbe. Plasmids are workhorse in synthetic biology. This is how we introduce, at least in the beginning, most new genes, new circuits, new pathways, new functionality, if you will, into our model organism to test whether what we are thinking is correct or not. But these plasmids that we use are actually based on natural plasmids uh, that were kind of found by um, a scientist uh, from the Bay Area a long time ago. Her name is Esther Lederberg. She isn't anymore, um, but she um, is a pioneer in this field, and she found these plasmids, and it was her husband who called them plasmids for the first time. Um, so, and these, 
since then, scientists kind of modified these plasmids into little vectors that um, geneticists could use to transfer new material into a cell. So naturally, in, a, uh, in, in, in nature, uh, microorganisms will harbor plasmids. Uh, one of the most famous examples of a plasmid is the TI plasmid of Agrobacterium tumefaciens, for example, uh, which encodes all the genes required for Agrobacterium for taking a piece of its DNA and introducing it into a plant genome. Agrobacterium does it for its own survival and its own life cycle, but genetic engineers have taken these mechanisms and created the tools to develop uh, modified plants, and so on. And all this research was done decades ago, but we still use these plasmids. And there are, there are scores of more such plasmids out in the nature uh, doing what we do artificially in the lab also. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Are they excreted by bacteria they, and then go, and go into other bacteria? Do they act like uh, extracellular vesicles? given off by bacteria or absorbed by them? Well, they were probably released into the environment when bacteria lies, uh, but they are also segregated between uh, daughter cells, just like chromosomes are. They, they just get distributed between the two daughter cells. So whatever the first cell has, the next two cells will have some number of it. And then there is replication machinery that will replicate these plasmids and on and on we go. Uh, plasmids can, uh, mobile genetic elements can be excreted from the cell and then be taken up by other cells either the cells of same kind or different kind. Some organisms are competent, which by which I mean that they are able to take up foreign, foreign DNA. And this is part of their survival mechanism to find new genes, to give them new capabilities, to maybe eat a new carbon source they couldn't eat before, withstand a toxic thing in their environment, um, etc. And how are the plasmids uh, packaged? And do they, do they open up? Once they reach, you know, the destination and, you know, what a plasmid is, is composed of what? A protein and RNA and other things or what's in the Interesting question. It's, uh, yes, you typically need a, a packaging protein to deliver it, which is part of the mobilization machinery and the conjugal machinery to do so. And so organisms that are competent are able to do it. But in the lab, for example, you can transfer just naked plasmid into an organism by a process that you know very well. It's called electroporation, where we just... Uh, apply uh, an electric field that causes the pores of the organism to open up and the DNA comes into the cell and then we put it into a nutrient media and then the, now the cell can grow with the plasmid inside it and it can or the DNA inside it and if, if it can be replicated it will replicate. Did you say so you, you put um, certain bacteria in an electric field and it what it, it forces their pores open or it increases pore size? It, it changes the morphology of the cell wall enough to allow molecules to come in, including DNA molecules to come in. And for different organisms, huh. optimize the process differently. You can also do this using chemical reagents, uh, which uh, also do something similar. You can make buffers and media containing various salts uh, and ions, and you can wash your cells with it and make them more able to take up molecules from the outside, including DNA, the DNA into the cell, you allow them to recover in normal media, and now the cell has taken up this DNA. 
And this is how you transform a lot of bacteria in the cell. Um, and, and when, when you're uh, altering their conditions in the lab, either through electric field or you know, pH, et cetera, do any of those conditions mimic um, a common condition that they'll experience when they're in their natural context? The electroporation, probably hard to imagine, but you know, I've not thought about this question very well, so I, uh, I won't just uh, say off the top of my head. But yeah, different salt conditions for sure. A lot of organisms, like I said, are just competent by themselves. They have a natural ability. This is part of their survival strategy. So there is a very uh, interesting organism, Bacillus subtilis, um, that has a whole uh, sort of hierarchical um, set of processes it goes through when it uh, gets stressed. So you may have heard that uh, some organism can form spores, right? So bacillus can form spores. It's one of those organisms that when it gets super stressed out, it will form a spore and basically just wait it out. Um, so, but it doesn't go and form spore just immediately. It goes through several different um, steps before it does that. And one of these steps is that it becomes competent. It starts taking up DNA fragments from the environment uh, and uh, start sort of maybe uh, trying to um, modify itself so that it can maybe find a way out from whatever predicament it's in, highly toxic environment, maybe too much heat. Uh, when that doesn't work, uh, it does a couple of other things. And then finally, when nothing works, it's like, okay, I think I have to sporulate. Well, it doesn't think, but it goes through that process and it sporulates. And then when good conditions um, present themselves, then the spores germinate and the organism becomes vegetative again. Have you tried to um, induce the spore stage of any of the bacteria you look at, you know, in the lab? I have, I have sort of like fleetingly studied uh, bacillus one time in the lab, but most of the organisms that I study are not sporulating organisms. Um, for a very simple reason. Uh, most of my work is focused on um, engineering organisms to make things like biofuels and bioproducts. Um, and I wanna make sure that I create biotech tools that will be adopted uh, by the industry. Um, and they, they are not very fond of organisms that sporulate. <laughs> Um, so typically we steer clear or in, in that particular segment of work, I steer clear of organisms that sporulate because that's a, that's a hard one. If your biomanufacturing tool uh, starts sporulating, then that's, um, every time it gets stressed out, you're going to have a lot of unreliability and inconsistency in your process. So most biotech processes would use organisms, um, that, uh, that are very stable in say in in a fermenter yeah that makes sense what kind of um bioengineering have you been doing what kind of um things do you want to produce with the with the uh, organisms that you're modifying yeah so you know i'm part of a a really large program called the bioenergy research centers it's a department of energy funded uh, program and uh, i'm part of one of their centers called the Joint Bioenergy Institute. Uh, in that uh, institute, I lead the group uh, that uh, basically studied organisms that have been uh, engineered or modified to produce 
biofuels or bioproducts. Uh, so I'll give you a, a recent example from my group. Um, we were trying to uh, we were trying to figure out uh, a particular sort of dependence in yeast. Yeast is a very very popular biotech platform and has been used to make a really really astonishingly large number of compounds all the way from fine chemicals to biofuels. So we were trying to figure out uh, how the metabolic state of the organism affects how much it can produce. Uh, it's not simply enough to modify or engineer an organism. You have to be able to hold it in the right metabolic state. So in order to do that experiment, we wanted to pick a product that was easy to see or diagnose. So we didn't have a very onerous analytical method. So we picked a um, non-ribosomal peptide. This is a very important category of compounds uh, that make lots of valuable bioactive compounds. But the specific compound we chose is called indigoidine. It's blue in color, a really beautiful, bright, bright blue. Um, so we were just looking for a way to be able to easily say, do a large number of experiments and be able to say, see, under these conditions, it made the compound. Under that condition, it didn't make the compound. So that study led us to this really interesting compound as an example. So we became curious about the compound itself and wondered if different compounds could, different organisms could make this compound differently. So we put this pathway, it's a very simple two gene pathway uh, into another uh, fungal system. And this fungal system is really cool. It's a red fungus called Rhodosporidium torioloides. Uh, and it's really cool because it'll eat anything. You throw sugars at it, it'll eat it. You throw, you know, woody material at it, it will eat it. So this is very valuable for us. We really want to make sure that we can use all kinds of sustainable carbon sources to make our final product. So this organism is very attractive. So we placed our uh, blue pigment pathway in this organism and lo and behold, it made a huge amount of this blue compound. So what started as sort of like a very um, exploratory experiment to figure out a workflow to understand microbial physiology ended up as a full-on technology to make what could be a sustainable dye. Indigoidine is very blue. It has many of the same properties as indigo. And we are currently uh, examining this compound for a lot of different properties, in, including its dye properties, to see if we can uh, use it in this context. And we're very hopeful because uh, you know, our informal sort of lab tests show that, yeah, sure, it's, it's, it's a dye. Um, and, and we can make a large amount of this and literally from anything, you can give me any carbon source, uh, agricultural waste, municipal waste, woody forest waste, and I can deconstruct and feed it to this orange fungus uh, or this red fungus, Rhodosporidium, and it will make this blue dye. Um, lots of it. So that's been really, uh, really cool, actually. Um, sometimes, you know, the science picks you. Well, is there, um, you know, the dye is useful, but um, since you found an organism that eats a lot of things, yes. you might be nudged, nudged to create something else that might be more useful or more widely useful than a dye. So, so you know, the dye itself is really useful. 
actually it's it's a lot more useful than you know i gave it credit for i had not realized how environmentally unsustainable some of the dye manufacturing processes in the world is uh, and that part of the environmental burden of the garment industry comes from uh, the use of dyes. So it is a, not a trivial uh, solution. It's actually a pretty cool thing in itself. But what we have now is a, a very elegant and simple way of interrogating a very useful organism. So we can use its ability to make this dye to optimize just the right kind of conditions for it. And we can uh, edit and engineer it to make many other compounds, biofuels, bioproducts that could be of great value to us. Um, and we can do it at levels that are meaningful to the industry and not just like a, a proof of concept. Yeah, that's great. Um, are there other examples of major pollutants that uh, bacteria might be a candidate to, um, you know, to digest and turn into useful materials? Probably. Uh, it depends upon, you know, uh, exactly how we develop these systems for use. Uh, different use cases require different considerations. Most of the work that we do, we do in a bioreactor, which is a contained system. And so we can play around a lot with the organisms to make them just right for that application. Uh, but depending upon the application, uh, you might want, you might have different constraints and you may or may not want to do certain kind of things. Uh, so those, those decisions are, you know, a, a whole other set of considerations. Uh, but yes, uh, microbes can be used to degrade plastics. They can be used to degrade pesticides. They can be used to degrade residual bioactive material from any number of human practices. They can be used to convert waste materials into useful intermediates or final products. Um, they can be used as a solution for waste management, recycling, sustainability, uh, you name it. You just need the right process and it needs to be scalable. And that requires investment. What do you think is the best way to find candidates um, of the right bacteria to you know, remediate waste? Should you look where there is waste and see which bacteria are thriving there naturally? Or is there a way to look at the genomics of existing bacteria and, and, and to see how they could be harnessed? Like what's the best approach? That's actually, you know, a really excellent question. And I wonder if you realize uh, how much we agonize over that. Uh, do you pick the one that you can work with and make it what you need it to be? Or do you go find the candidate that already is that way? But, you know, you, it might be very unfamiliar otherwise to you, right? Because there are pros and cons to both uh, approaches. If you work with model organisms, you know so much about them. You have so many tools in them. You can try so many things in them. You can validate it so many different ways and you can be so sure of exactly how it will perform uh, in a particular condition and really like fine tune it. But ultimately it may not be able to do some really, really intricate biology you need it to do. Um, and on the other extreme, you might be able to find this perfect candidate in the environment that does exactly that intricate biology that you are after, but you have no idea how to grow it, what it needs, what its biology is, and so on. So where does it meet? 
Well, the good news is that genomics has had a revolution in the last couple of decades. Uh, sequencing genomes um, has become easier than ever. Uh, a, co a colleague of mine likes to compare it to the Moore's Law, where the cost of sequencing and the cost of synthesis are going down at a rate faster than Moore's Law. What that means is that our ability to interrogate organisms is just going up exponentially. And we can take a relatively poorly understood organism from the environment and bring it up to model organism status um, very, very quickly. And this work gets aided by our ability to do really rapid validation in the lab, again, because of another kind of technology that is also seeing rapid growth, and that is automation, where we can do large number of experiments and do large number of interrogations in a highly parallel manner. So, I guess the correct answer to your question is that one has to aid the other. Ultimately, we might have to select something from the environment that does that intricate biology you're interested in. But in order to make it, uh, make it predictable and reliable and safe in the environment you want to use it, you need to use genetics in a known organism to try out all your hypotheses. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. What is required to properly understand and harness a given bacteria for a given process? Like what are some of the major steps that's involved? The major steps, well, first, you know, is like the really, really simple stuff. You have to have a genome sequence, right? You need to establish the conditions under which you can cultivate it. You need to be able to grow it to a monoculture uh, or as close to a monoculture. Some organisms are, we, we can't do that. We are not able to get it to a pure culture. They have... Uh, partners that they are, are necessary. So that's an added challenge. But, you know, you're asking what the steps would be. Yeah, so I would like to have that organism uh, be cultivatable, know the conditions under which I can cultivate it. Um, I uh, Then once the genome sequence is known, I would like to work with a computational biologist uh, to put together sort of like a metabolic map for it so that we have some predictive uh, capability to say, if I want to make this edit here, it will have that outcome there. Or if I want to have that outcome there, I need to make this edit here. But if I make this edit here, something else will happen somewhere else, have that kind of a map in front of me as best as possible. And then I need the ability to iterate. The first design isn't going to cut it. I need to be able to make my first design and test it and learn from it and then build it again. This in engineering terms is the design, build, test, learn cycle. I need good methods to go through this cycle rapidly many times in order to be able to iterate and come up with the right condition under which this organism can be cultivated stably and do the biology I need it to do. That's what I need. So genome okay. good gen genetics, good automation, good strain designs. Yeah. A lot of work and a lot of factors involved, understood. So, Winjola, what's the best way for people to learn more about your work and to get in contact and ask questions? Well, yeah, so uh, my work is all, all published, so you can just Google it and read it. The documents might be a little bit dry and, and they're in, in science journals, so maybe a little bit technical. Uh, but uh, one of the best ways to, to learn is... 
there are um, there are a lot of resources. If you are uh, an undergraduate, uh, there are fantastic programs funded uh, by state and federal level agencies to come and do research at universities and the national labs. Um, uh, you can spend a summer or a winter in some scientist's lab, like getting hands-on experience. Um, uh, if you're really interested, you think you wanna have a career in science, I highly recommend it um, because it'll give you a real sense of how fast, slow, hard, or not hard some things are. There is no uh, sort of substitute for actual learning. Um, and I would, um, that's one way if, if you're an uh, undergraduate. Um, uh, if you are just interested in science, there are excellent podcasts, there are excellent books, there are uh, excellent science writers. Um, Ed Young is one of my favorite science writers. Um, he's written some really nice pieces around the microbiome that can be a really nice introduction to why it even matters. I would, I would encourage uh, people to read this. Uh, these these books and um, uh, there are a lot of young scientists on Twitter uh, and other social media who share their research, their point of views, their hypothesis, their ideas. Everybody's on social media these days. Uh, if you follow these people, you will get a flavor of their science on a day-to-day -day basis and that can be very exciting. Um, and now more than ever, people are putting research even before they go into peer-reviewed journal into preprint servers that are completely open source. So if you really want to, uh, you can have like a pretty unfiltered view into real-time research in your topic of interest as it's coming up. Um, but you have to be mindful there that some of this research still needs to be curated a little bit and it's not exactly um, perfect yet. Well, very good. Andrew, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.